Chapter Four of The Last Plainsman by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last Plainsman by Zane Grey. Chapter Four. The Trail. Frank, what do we do about horses? Asked Jones. Jim'll want to bay, and of course you'll want to ride Spot. The rest of our nags will only do to pack the outfit. I've been thinking," replied the foreman. You sure will need good mounts. Now it happens that a friend of mine is just at this time at House Rock Valley, an outlying post of one of the big Utah ranches. He is getting in the horses off the range, and he has some cracking good ones. Let's ooze over there. It's only thirty miles, and get some horses from him. We were all eager to act upon Frank's suggestion, so plans were made for the three of us to ride over and select our mounts. Frank and Jim would follow with the pack-train, and, if all went well, on the following evening we would camp under the shadow of Buckskin. Early next morning we were on our way. I tried to find a soft place on Old Baldy, one of Frank's pack-horses. He was a horse that would not have raised up at the trumpet of doom. Nothing under the sun, Frank said, bothered Old Baldy but the operation of shoeing. We made the distance to the outpost by noon, and found Frank's friend a genial and obliging cowboy, who said we could have all the horses we wanted. While Jones and Wallace strutted around the big corral, which was full of vicious, dusty, shaggy horses and mustangs, I sat high on the fence. I heard them talking about points and girth and stride, and a lot of terms that I could not understand. Wallace selected a heavy sorrel and Jones a big bay, very like Jim's. I had observed, way over in the corner of a corral, a bunch of cayuses, and among them a clean-limbed black horse. Edging round on the fence, I got a closer view, and then cried out that I had found my horse. I jumped down and caught him, much to my surprise, for the other horses were wild and had kicked viciously. The black was beautifully built, wide-chested and powerful, but not heavy. His coat glistened like sheeny black satin and he had a white face and white feet and a long mane. "'I don't know about giving you Satan. That's his name,' said the cowboy. "'The foreman rides him often. He's the fastest, the best climber, and the best dispositioned horse on the range. But I guess I can let you have him,' he continued when he saw my disappointed face. "'By George!' exclaimed Jones. "'You've got it on us this time.' like to trade asked wallace as his sorrel tried to bite him that black looks sort of fierce i led my prize out of the corral up to the little cabin nearby where i tied him and proceeded to get acquainted after a fashion of my own though not versed in horse lore i knew that half the battle was to win his confidence i smoothed his silky coat and patted him and then surreptitiously slipped a lump of sugar from my pocket the sugar, which I had purloined in Flagstaff, and carried all the way across the desert, was somewhat disreputably soiled, and Satan sniffed at it disdainfully. Evidently he had never smelled or tasted sugar. I pressed it into his mouth, he munched it, and then looked me over with some interest. I handed him another lump. He took it and rubbed his nose against me. Satan was mine. Frank and Jim came along early in the afternoon. What with packing, changing saddles, and shoeing the horses, we were all busy. Old Baldy would not be shot, so we let him off till a more opportune time. By four o'clock we were riding toward the slopes of Buckskin, now only a few miles away, standing up higher and darker. 
"'What's that for?' inquired Wallace, pointing to a long, rusty, wire-wrapped, double-barreled blunderbuss of a shotgun, stuck in the holster of Jones's saddle. The colonel, who had been having a fine time with the impatient and curious hounds, did not vouchsafe any information on that score. But very shortly we were destined to learn the use of this incongruous firearm. I was riding in advance of Wallace and a little behind Jones. The dogs, excepting Jude, who had been kicked and lamed, were ranging along before their master. Suddenly, right before me, I saw an immense jackrabbit, and just then Mose and Don caught sight of it. In fact, Mose bumped his blunt nose into the rabbit. When it leaped into scared action, Mose yelped, and Don followed suit. Then they were after it in wild, clamorous pursuit. Jones let out the centaurian blast, now becoming familiar, and spurred after them. He reached over, pulled the shotgun out of the holster, and fired both barrels at the jumping dogs. I expressed my amazement in strong language, and Wallace whistled. Don came sneaking back with his tail between his legs, and Mose, who had cowered as if stung, circled around ahead of us. Joe's finally succeeded in getting him back. Come in, ya yeah. measly rabbit dogs. What do you mean chasing off that way? We're after lions. Lions, understand? Don looked thoroughly convinced of his error, but Mose, being more thick headed, appeared mystified rather than hurt or frightened. Size shot do you use? I asked. Number ten. They don't hurt much at seventy five yards, replied our leader. I use them as sort of a long arm. You see, the dogs must be made to know what we're after. Ordinary means would never do in a case like this. My idea is to break them off coyotes, wolves, and deer. And when we cross the lion trail, we'll let them go. I'll teach them sooner than you'd think. Only we must get where we can see what they were trailing. Then I can tell whether to call them back or not. The sun was gliding the rim of the desert ramparts when we began the ascent of the foothills of Buckskin. A steep trail wound zigzag up the mountain. We led our horses as it was a long, hard climb. From time to time I stopped to catch my breath. I gazed away across the growing void to the gorgeous pink cliffs far above and beyond the red wall, which had seemed so high, and then out toward the desert. The irregular ragged crack in the plain, apparently only a thread of broken ground, was the Grand Canyon. How unutterably remote! wild grand was that world of red and brown of purple pall of vague outline two thousand feet probably we mounted to what frank called little buckskin in the west a copper glow ridged with lead-colored clouds marked where the sun had set the air was very thin and icy cold at the first clump of pinion pines we made dry camp when i sat down it was as if i had been anchored Frank solicitously remarked that I looked sort of beat. Jim built a roaring fire and began getting supper. A snow squall came on the rushing wind. The air grew colder, and though I hugged the fire, I could not get warm. When I had satisfied my hunger, I rolled out my sleeping bag and crept into it. I stretched my aching limbs and did not move again. Once I awoke drowsily, feeling the warmth of the fire, and I heard Frank say, He's asleep dead to the world. He's all in, said Jones. Riding what did it. You know how a horse tears a man to pieces. Will it be able to stand it? asked Frank, with as much solicitude as if he were my brother. 
when you get out after anything well you're hell and think of country we're going into i know you've never seen the breaks of this siwash but i have and it's the worst and roughest country i ever saw breaks after breaks like the ridges on a washboard heading on the south slope of buckin and running down side by side miles and miles deeper and deeper till they run into that awful hole it will be a killin trip on men horses and dogs now mr wallace he's been campin and roughin with the navajos for months he's in some kind of shape but uh frank concluded his remark with a doubtful pause i'm some worried too replied jones but he would come he stood the desert well enough even the mormons said that in the ensuing silence the fire sputtered the glare fitfully merged into dark shadows under the weird pinions and the wind moaned through the short branches well drawled a slow soft voice sure i reckon you're hollerin too soon frank's measly trick puttin him on spot showed me he rode out on spot and he rode in on spot sure he'll stay it was not all the warmth of the blankets that glowed over me then the voices died away dreamily and my eyelids dropped sleepily tight late in the night i sat up suddenly roused by some unusual disturbance the fire was dead the wind swept with a rush through the pinions from the black darkness came the staccato chorus of coyotes don barked his displeasure sounder made the welkin ring and old mose growled low and deep grumbling like muttered thunder then all was quiet and i slept dawn rosy red confronted me when i opened my eyes breakfast was ready frank was packing old baldy jones talked to his horse as he saddled him wallace came stooping his giant figure under the pinions the dogs eager and soft-eyed sat around jim and begged the sun peeped over the pink cliffs the desert still lay asleep tranced in a purple and golden streaked mist come come said jones in his big voice we're slow here's the sun easy easy replied frank we've got all the time there is when frank threw the saddle over satan i interrupted him and said i would care for my horse henceforward soon we were under way the horses fresh the dogs scenting the keen cold air the trail rolled over the ridges of pinion and scrubby pine occasionally we could see the black ragged crest of buckskin above us from one of these ridges i took my last long look back at the desert and engraved on my mind a picture of the red wall and the many-hued ocean of sand the trail narrow and indistinct mounted the last slow-rising slope the pinions failed and the scrubby pines became abundant at length we reached the top and entered the great arched aisles of buckskin forest the ground was flat as a table magnificent pine trees with branches high and spreading gave the eye glad welcome some of these monarchs were eight feet thick at the base and two hundred feet high here and there one lay gaunt and prostrate a victim of the wind the smell of pitch pine was sweetly overpowering when i went through here two weeks ago the snow was a foot deep and a bog in places said frank the sun has been oozing round here some i'm afraid jones won't find any snow on this end of buckskin 
Thirty miles of winding trail, brown and springy from its thick mat of pine needles, shaded always by the massive semi-bark trees, took us over the extremity of buckskin. Then we faced down into the head of a ravine that ever grew deeper, stonier and rougher. I shifted from side to side, from leg to leg, in my saddle, dismounted and hobbled before Satan, mounted again, and rode on. Jones called the dogs and complained to them of the lack of snow. Wallace sat his horse comfortably, taking long pulls at his pipe and long gazes at the shaggy sides of the ravine. Frank, energetic and tireless, kept the pack-horses in the trail. Jim jogged on silently, and so we rode down to Oak Spring. The spring was pleasantly situated in a grove of oaks and pinions under the shadow of three cliffs. Three ravines opened here into an oval valley. A rude cabin of rough hewn logs stood near the spring. Get down, get down, sang out Frank. We'll hang up here. Beyond Oak is no man's land. We take our chances on water after we leave here. When we had unsaddled, unpacked, and got our fire roaring on the wide stone hearth of the cabin, it was once again night. Boys, said Jones after supper, we're now on the edge of the lion country. Frank saw a lion sign in here only two weeks ago, and though the snow is gone, we stand a show of finding tracks in the sand and dust. Tomorrow morning, before the sun gets a chance at the bottom of these ravines, we'll be up and doing. We'll each take a dog and search in different directions. Keep the dog in leash, and when he opens up, examine the ground carefully for tracks. If a dog opens on any track that you are sure isn't a lion's, punish him. And when a lion track is found, hold the dog in, wait, and signal. We'll use a signal I have tried and found far-reaching and easy to yell. Wahoo! That's it. Once yelled, it means come. Twice means come quickly. Three times means come danger. In one corner of the cabin was a platform of poles covered with straw. I threw the sleeping bag on this and was soon stretched out. Misgivings as to my strength worried me before I closed my eyes. Once on my back I felt I could not rise. My chest was sore, my cough deep and rasping. It seemed I had scarcely closed my eyes when Joan's impatient voice recalled me from sweet oblivion. Frank, Frank, daylight, Jim, boys, he called. I tumbled out in a gray wan twilight. It was cold enough to make the fire acceptable, but nothing like the morning before on buckskin. Come to the festal board, drawled Jim, almost before I had my boots laced. Jones, said Frank, Jim and I'll ooze round here today. There's lots to do, and we want to have things hitched right before we strike for the seawash. We've got to shoe old Baldy, and if we can't get him locoed, it'll take all of us to do it. The light was still gray when Jones led off with Don, Wallace with Sounder, and I with Mose. Jones directed us to separate, follow the dry stream beds in the ravines, and remember his instructions given the night before. The ravine to the right, which I entered, was choked with huge stones fallen from the cliff above, and pinions growing thick, and I wondered apprehensively how a man could evade a wild animal in such a place, much less chase it. Old Mose pulled on his chain and sniffed at coyote and deer tracks, and every time he evinced such interest in such, I cut him with a switch, which, to tell the truth, he did not notice. I thought I heard a shout, and, holding Mose tight, waited and listened. 
Wahoo! Wahoo! floated on the air, rather deadened as if it had come from round the triangular cliff that faced into the valley. Urging and dragging Mose, I ran down the ravine as fast as I could, and soon encountered Wallace coming from the middle ravine. Jones, he said excitedly, this way. There's the signal again. We dashed in haste for the mouth of the third ravine, and came suddenly upon Jones, kneeling under a pinion tree. Boys, look! he exclaimed as he pointed to the ground. There, clearly defined in the dust, was a cat track, as big as my spread hand, and the mere sight of it sent a chill up my spine. There's a lion track for you, made by a female, two-year-old, but can't say if she passed here last night. Don won't take the trail. Try Mose. I led Mose to the big round imprint and put his nose down into it. The old hound sniffed and sniffed, then lost interest. Cold, ejaculated Jones. No go. Try Sounder. Come on, boy. You've got a nose for it. He urged the reluctant hound forward. Sounder needed not to be shown the trail. He stuck his nose in it and stood very quiet for a long moment. Then he quivered slightly, raised his nose, and sought the next track. Step by step, he went slowly, doubtfully. All at once his tail wagged stiffly. "'Look at that!' cried Jones in delight. "'He's caught a scent when the others couldn't. Hey, Mose, get back. Keep Mose and Don back. Give him room.' Slowly Sounder paced up the ravine as carefully as if he were traveling on thin ice. He passed the dusty open trail to a scaly ground with little bits of grass, and he kept on. We were electrified to hear him give vent to a deep bugle-blast note of eagerness. "'By George, he's got it, boys!' exclaimed Jones, as he lifted the stubborn, struggling hound off the trail. "'I know that bay. It means a lion passed here this morning, and we'll get him up as sure as you're alive. Come, Sounder. Now for the horses.' As we ran pell-mell into the little glade, where Jim sat mending some saddle trapping, Frank strode up the trail with the horses. "'Well, I heard Sounder,' he said with his genial smile. "'Something's coming off, eh? "'You'll have to ooze round some to keep up with that hound.' I saddled Satan with fingers that trembled in excitement and pushed my little Remington automatic into the rifle holster. "'Boys, listen,' said our leader. "'We're off now in the beginning of a hunt new to you. "'Remember, no shooting, no bloodletting, except in self-defense. "'Keep as close to me as you can, listen for the dogs,' and when you fall behind or separate, yell out the signal cry. Don't forget this. We're bound to lose each other. Look out for the spikes and branches on the trees. If the dogs split, whoever follows the one that trees they lie on must wait there till the rest come up. Off now. Come, Sounder, Mose, you rascal, Aya, come, Don, come, puppy, and take your medicine. Except Mose, the hounds were all trembling and running eagerly to and fro. When Sounder was loosed, he let them in a bee-line to the trail, with us cantering after. Sounder worked exactly as before, only he followed the line of tracks a little further up the ravine before he bayed. He kept going faster and faster, occasionally letting out one deep, short yelp. The other hounds did not give tongue, but eager, excited, baffled, kept at his heels. The ravine was long, and the wash at the bottom up which the lion had proceeded turned and twisted round boulders large as houses, and led through dense groves of some short, rough shrub. Now and then the lion tracks showed plainly in the sand. For five miles or more, Sounder led us up the ravine, 
which began to contract and grow steep. The dry stream bed got to be full of thickets of popular, tall, straight branch saplings about the size of a man's arm, and growing so close we had to press them aside to let our horses through. Presently Sounder slowed up and appeared at fault. We found him puzzling over an open grassy patch, and after nosing it for a little while, he began skirting the edge. "'Cute dog,' declared Jones. "'That Sounder will make a lion chaser. Our game has gone up here somewhere.' Sure enough, Sounder directly gave tongue from the side of the ravine. It was climb for us now. Broken shale, rocks of all dimensions, pinions down and pinions up, made ascending no easy problem. We had to dismount and lead our horses. Thus losing ground, Jones forged ahead and reached the top of the ravine first. When Wallace and I got up, breathing heavily, Jones and the hounds were out of sight, but Sounder kept voicing his clear call, giving us our direction. Off we flew, over ground that was still rough, but enjoyable going compared to the ravine slopes. The ridge was sparsely covered with cedar and pinion, through which, far ahead, we pretty soon spied Jones. Wallace signaled, and our leader answered twice. We caught up with him on the brink of another ravine deeper and craggier than the first, full of dead, gnarled pinion and splintered rocks. "'This gulch is the largest of the three that head in at Oak Spring,' said Jones. "'Boys, don't forget your direction. Always keep a feeling where camp is. Always sense it every time you turn. The dogs have gone down. That lion is in here somewhere.' Maybe he lives down in the high cliffs near the spring, and came up here last night. For a kill, he's buried somewhere. Lions never travel far. Hark! Hark! There's Sounder and the rest of them. They've got the scent. They've all got it. Down, boys, down, and ride. With that, he crashed into the cedar with a way that showed me how impervious he was to slashing branches sharp as thorns and steep descent and peril. Wallace's big sorrel plunged after him, and the rolling stones cracked. Suffering as I was by this time, with cramp in my legs and torturing pain, I had to choose between holding my horse in or falling off. So I chose the former, and accordingly got behind. Dead cedar and pinion trees lay everywhere, with their contorted limbs reaching out like the arms of the devilfish. Stones blocked every opening, making the bottom of the ravine, after what seemed an interminable time, I found the tracks of Jones and Wallace. A long wahoo drew me on. Then the mellow bay of a hound floated up the ravine. Satan made up time in the sandy stream bed, but kept me busy dodging overhanging branches. I became aware, after a succession of efforts to keep from being strung on pinions, that the sand before me was clean and trackless. Hauling Satan up sharply, I waited irresolutely and listened. Then from high up in the ravine side waved down a medley of yelps and barks. Wahoo! Wahoo! Ringing down the slope, peeled against the cliff behind me and set the wild echoes flying. Satan, of his own accord, headed up the incline. Surprised at this, I gave him free rein. How he did climb! Not long did it take me to discover that he picked out easier going than I had. Once I saw Jones crossing a ledge far above me and I yelled our signal cry. The answer returned clear and sharp. Then its echo crackled under the hollow cliff, and crossing and recrossing the ravine, it died at last, far away, like the muffled peal of a bell-boy. Again I heard the blended yelping of the hounds, and closer at hand I saw a long, low cliff above, and decided that the hounds were running at the base of it. Another chorus of yelps, quicker, wilder than the others, 
drew a yell from me. Instinctively, I knew the dogs had jumped game of some kind. Satan knew it as well as I, for he quickened his pace and sent the stones clattering behind him. I gained the base of the yellow cliff, but found no tracks in the dust of ages that had crumbled in its shadow, nor did I hear the dogs. Considering how close they had seemed, this was strange. I halted and listened. Silence reigned supreme. The ragged cracks in the cliff walls could have harbored many a watching lion, and I cast an apprehensive glance into their dark confines. Then I turned my horse to get round the cliff and over the ridge. When I again stopped, all I could hear was the thumping of my heart and the laboring panting of Satan. I came to a break in the cliff, a steep place of weathered rock, and I put Satan to it. He went up with a will. From the narrow saddle of the ridge crest, I tried to take my bearings. Below me slanted the green of pinion, with bleached treetops standing like spears and uprising yellow stones. Fancying I heard a gunshot, I leaned a straining ear against the soft breeze. The proof came presently in the unmistakable report of Jones's blunderbuss. It was repeated almost instantly, giving reality to the direction, which was down the slope of what I concluded must be the third ravine. Wondering what was the meaning of the shots, and chagrined, because I was out of the race, but calmer in mind, I let Seton stand. Hardly a moment elapsed before a sharp bark tingled in my ears. It belonged to old Mose. Soon I distinguished a rattling of stones and the sharp metallic clicks of hoofs striking rocks. Then into a space below me loped a beautiful deer, so large that at first I took it for an elk. Another sharp bark, nearer this time, told the tale of Moses' dereliction. In a few moments he came in sight, running with his tongue out and his head held high. Hiya, you old gladiator! Hiya, hiya! I yelled and yelled again. Mose passed over the saddle on the trail of the deer and his short bark floated back to remind me how far he was from a lion-dog. Then I divined the meaning of the shotgun reports. The hounds had crossed a fresher trail than that of the lion, and our leader had discovered it. Despite a keen appreciation of Jones's task, I gave way to amusement, and repeated Wallace's paradoxical formula, Pet the lions and shoot the hounds. So I headed down the ravine, looking for a blunt, bold crag, which I had described from camp. I found it before long, and, profiting by past failures to judge of distance, gave my first impression a great stretch, and then decided that I was more than two miles from Oak. Long after two miles had been covered, and I had begun to associate Jim's biscuits with a certain soft seat near a ruddy fire, I was apparently still the same distance from my landmark crag. Suddenly a slight noise brought me to a halt. I listened intently. Only an indistinct rattling of small rocks disturbed the impressive stillness. It might have been the weathering that goes on constantly, and it might have been an animal. I inclined to the former idea till I saw Satan's ears go up. Jones had told me to watch the ears of my horse, and short as had been my acquaintance with Satan, I had learned that he always discovered things more quickly than I, so I waited patiently. From time to time a rattling roll of pebbles, almost musical, caught my ears. It came from the base of the wall of yellow cliff, and barred the summit of all those ridges. Satan threw up his head and nosed the breeze. The delicate, almost stealthy sounds, the action of my horse, the waiting, drove my heart to extra work. The breeze quickened and fanned my cheek, and borne upon it came the faint and far-away bay of a hound. It came again and again, each time nearer. 
Then on a stronger puff of wind rang the clear, deep, mellow call that had given Sounder his beautiful name. Never, it seemed, had I heard music so blood-stirring. Sounder was on the trail of something, and he had it headed my way. Satan heard, shot up his long ears, and tried to go ahead. But I restrained and soothed him into quiet. Long moments I sat there with the poignant consciousness of the wildness of the scene, of the significant rattling of the stones, and of the bell-tongued hound baying incessantly, sending warm joy through my veins, the absorption in sensations now, yielding only to the hunting instinct when Satan snorted and quivered. Again, the deep-tongued bay rang into the silence with the stirring thrill of life, and a sharp rattling of stones just above brought another snort from Satan. Across an open space in the pinions a gray form flashed. I leapt off Satan and knelt to get a better view under the trees. I soon made out another deer passing along the base of the cliff. Mounting again, I rode up to the cliff to wait for Sounder. A long time I had to wait for the hound. It proved that the atmosphere was as deceiving in regard to sound as to sight. Finally, Sounder came running along the wall. I got off to intercept him. The crazy fellow, he had never responded to my overtures of friendship, uttered short, sharp yelps of delight and actually leapt in my arms. But I could not hold him. He darted upon the trail again and paid no heed to my angry shouts. With resolve to overhaul him, I jumped on Satan and whirled after the hound. The black stretched out with such a stride that I was at pains to keep my seat. I dodged the jutting rocks and projecting snags, felt stinging branches in my face, and the rush of sweet dry wind. Under the crumbling walls, over slopes of weathered stone and droppings of shelving rock, round protruding noses of cliff, over an underpinion, Satan thundered. He came out on top of the ridge at the narrow back I called a saddle. Here I caught a glimpse of Sounder far below, going down into the ravine from which I had ascended some time before. I called to him, but I might as well call to the wind. Weary to the point of exhaustion, I once more turned Satan toward camp. I lay forward on his neck and let him have his will. Far down the ravine, I awoke to strange sound and soon recognized the cracking of iron-shod hoofs against stone, then voices. Turning an abrupt bend in the sandy wash, I ran into Jones and Wallace. "'Fall in. Line up in the sad procession,' said Jones. "'Tage and the pup are faithful. The rest of the dogs are somewhere between the Grand Canyon and the Utah Desert.' I related my adventures and tried to spare Mose and Sounder as much as conscience would permit. "'Hard luck.' commented Jones. Just as the hounds jumped the cougar. Oh, they bounced him out of the rocks all right. Don't you remember just under the cliff wall where you and Wallace came up to me? Well, just as they jumped him, they ran right into fresh deer tracks. I saw one of the deer. Now that's too much for any hounds except those trained for lions. Shot at most twice, but couldn't turn him. He has to be hurt. They've all got to be hurt to make them understand. Wallace told of a wild ride somewhere in Jones's wake, and of sundry knocks and bruises he had sustained, of pieces of corduroy he had left decorating the cedars, and of a most humiliating event where a gaunt and bare pinion snag had penetrated under his belt and lifted him, mad and kicking off his horse. "'These western nags will hang you on a limb every chance they get,' declared Jones, "'and don't you overlook that. Well, there's the cabin. We'd better stay here for a few days or a week.' 
and break in the dogs and horses, for this day's work was apple pie to what we'll get in the Siwash. I groaned inwardly and was remorselessly glad to see Wallace fall off his horse and walk on one leg to the cabin. When I got my saddle off, Satan had given him a drink and hobbled him. I crept into the cabin and dropped like a log. I felt as if every bone in my body was broken and my flesh was raw. I got gleeful gratification from Wallace's complaints and Jones' remark that he had a stitch in his back. So ended the first chase after cougars. End of chapter 4